I'm stating the obvious, but the key point of this cogwheel is that positive social engagement is good for your brain and protects you from decline in dementia. Negative social interactions are bad for your brain, or for your whole body, your whole being. To protect and strengthen your brain, you need to cultivate positive and nurturing social relationships and get yourself out of negative ones. Hi there, I'm Michael C. Patterson. I'm excited that you've decided to listen to this podcast on the important topic of social engagement. We're in the process of reviewing MindRamp's eight cogwheels of brain health, eight behavioral areas that have a profound impact on the health of our brains. So far, we have looked at physical exercise and mental stimulation, and now we move on to social engagement. Does it surprise you that social engagement is on our list of essential cogwheels? Well, it shouldn't. When you think about it, without the care and cooperation of other people, we are we're in deep trouble. If the importance of social contact, communication, and cooperation wasn't clear to you before, I bet it is now that we are coping with our current state of affairs, including the pandemic, increased awareness of how racial justice affects all of us, and the hyper-partisanship of our politics, which is exacerbated by a narcissistic president who has no empathy, compassion, or concern for anyone other than himself. This cascade of crises has exposed the fragility of America's social contract. We are clearly not a united people with shared ideals. All of the risk factors associated with social engagement are being revealed to us in their stark reality. I have to admit I found this podcast very hard to write. I thought I knew the main points that I wanted to make about social justice, but, I mean, social engagement, that's an interesting slip of the tongue, about social engagement. But, as I began writing, the press of current events roiled the waters and and created disturbing cross-currents running below the surface of my initial thoughts. Human beings are social animals. Some theorize that the human brain grew in size and complexity specifically to deal with challenges of social relationships and social exchange. The human mind is, arguably, the most complex organism in existence. Coping with other people, making the effort to communicate with understanding and to cooperate for mutual gain, is incredibly important, but it is also, quite obviously, incredibly challenging. The simple story of social engagement, the story that I intended to tell, was that positive social interactions tend to promote health and well-being, And negative social interactions do the opposite. Like all the other cogwheels, there are both risk factors and protective factors associated with the way we relate to other people. The simple solution, then, is to minimize the risk factors and optimize the protective factors. Well, that is probably sound advice, but easier said than done. So, I will slog ahead and do my best to shed some light on the dynamics of social interactions, knowing full well that much of the risks of social interaction are embedded within our culture and are largely impervious to individual remedies. I will try to offer some broad and simple generalizations about social engagement, understanding that in so doing, I am losing the subtlety and nuance of specific examples. 
The dynamics of social risk and protective factors. When looking at social risk factors, it's helpful for me to look at them from different perspectives to make sure that I'm not missing some obvious form of risk. One perspective looks at who is involved, who is it who is interacting, and then the second perspective looks at the nature of the interaction. How does the social interaction take place, and how does the, the effect of that interaction manifest itself? So from the who is involved perspective, there can be personal interactions and there can be group interactions. And by personal interactions, I mean one-on-one -on -one encounters. That is how two people treat each other as individuals and as part of a personal relationship. But we also have to consider group dynamics and group relations and how they have an effect on our body brains. Group relations can obviously be risky or protective, and this can take the form of one person interacting with a large group. I mean, how does the group treat this one individual, and how does this individual's behavior affect the group? And it can also play out in terms of entire groups interacting with other groups. Very often, for example, members of one group consider their group to be an in-group, and all other groups are therefore out-groups. This automatically sets up a risky relationship between the groups. In terms of the nature of the interactions, I think it's important to remember that they can be both physical, I mean, I can give you a hug or take a swing at you, but they can also be psychological. I can say things or behave in ways that make you feel either good or I can do things that uh, hurt you and make you feel bad. The consequences of social interactions can be physical, emotional and psychological. I can mess with your mind. You can mess with mine. So keep these different types of social interactions in mind as we quickly review the risks and protections associated with the social engagement cogwheel. Risk factors. Clearly, social interactions that involve abuse, manipulation, oppression, prejudice, discrimination, violence, intimidation, scorn, rejection, dismissal, suspicion, jealousy, these kinds of social interactions are hurtful, they're dangerous. Rather than strengthening the fabric of social cooperation, they rip it apart. They rob us of safety and security, and instead create an environment filled with anxiety and fear. Physical damage clearly affects the health and well-being of our physical beings, our bodies and our brains. Further, psychological abuses mess with the proper functioning of our minds. In addition to whatever physical and psychological harm they inflict, these negative social interactions also trigger a stress response, adding injury to insult. Chronic stress, as we will discuss in the episode on stress management, is debilitating. Chronic stress handicaps the brain by robbing it of the resources it needs to function normally. Let's put a little spotlight on a few types of negative social interactions and social risk factors. Abusive relationships. Clearly, abusive relationships are dangerous, and we are vulnerable to all kinds of abusive relationships, both on the personal level and on the group level. Child abuse, spousal abuse, elder abuse are a few of the more obvious forms of personal abuse. 
Police brutality is a form of physical abuse that is on everyone's minds these days. It has both a physical and a psychological manifestation. The caging of immigrants and the forced separation of immigrant families is a a dreadful form of social abuse and intimidation that is currently taking place in our own backyard. Unfair hierarchies or caste systems are a form of dominance and oppression that are often a part of group dynamics. The very structure of the group creates unfair social relationships. Take, for example, the caste system in India. It's an obvious example, where you have Brahmins on the top and untouchables on the bottom. But Great Britain has operated with a strict caste system as well. It's displayed on well-known TV series like Upstairs, Downstairs, and Downton Abbey. The aristocracy on the top, servants on the bottom. We don't like to think of America as having a caste system, but we clearly do. We divide ourselves into economic classes, for one thing. We always talk about the lower class, the middle class, and the upper class. In recent years, the in-group, the rich, the elite, have solidified their exclusive control of, of the wealth of the nation. They have, the rest of us have not. There's research showing that one's position in the social hierarchy has a direct impact on health, mood, and well-being. People who are lower in the hierarchy fare worse than those that are in the top. This negative impact of social status is exacerbated when people feel that their social status is unfair and unjustified. The media and the advertising industry aggravate our relationships to social status by championing consumerism and by glorifying opulence and the ostentatious display of signs of wealth. We are told that we will arrive and be happy, be in the in-group when we buy the biggest car and the, the, the house with the most rooms and we vacation in glamorous resort locations. The Black Lives Matters movement is helping us recognize the corrosive effect of a caste system of white supremacy and white privilege. The in-group in America, well, in fact, in most of the world, is white. Whiteness is the upper level of the hierarchy of the caste system, and it provides all kinds of benefits that just aren't available to people in the out-group. All people of color are relegated to the out-group and populate the lower rungs of this artificial hierarchy. Caste systems operate within organizations that structure themselves into hierarchical management systems. Each level of the hierarchy is subservient to the level directly above it. In hospital settings, for example, doctors consider themselves to be in a caste that is above that of nurses, and certainly above the rest of the orderlies and the maintenance people and so on in the hospital. Families often operate as strict hierarchies, some more damaging than others when you have an authoritative parent who demands obedience. Hierarchies perpetuate systems of unequal and unfair social relationships. Those in the in-group need to keep the out-group where they are. Those with power use it to strengthen themselves and to weaken their opponents. The dangers of caste systems are numerous. It causes one group to look down on the other group, one individual to feel superior to another. And rather than contributing to unity and cooperation, caste systems divide us, and the division is hurtful on both sides. Social inequalities are bad for our brains. They undermine the physical health of brain structures. Even more insidious, caste systems and social inequalities 
mess up our minds, making it harder for all of us to feel real contentment and fulfillment in our lives, making it harder for us to, to feel empathy and compassion with our fellow travelers on this earth. Let me move on to another important social risk factor, isolation and loneliness. Isolation and loneliness are often used interchangeably, but there is an important distinction that we should highlight. Isolation is a condition of physical distancing from people. Loneliness is the negative emotional response that often arises from being isolated. There are two important points to be made. The first is that you can feel isolated without feeling lonely. The second is that you can feel lonely without being isolated. You can be surrounded by people and still feel lonely if you feel unable to make meaningful connections or if you feel rejected or snubbed. What matters is how you deal with real or imagined isolation and how you deal with the stress that often accompanies it. The threat to our happiness and the well-being of our brains arises when isolation stimulates loneliness. I personally love to spend time alone. I'm an introvert and I tend to draw energy from myself. I don't need lots of other people to feel alive. I love being with family and friends, don't get me wrong, but I don't mind being alone. Isolation, in other words, doesn't bother me as much as it may other people. But of course, this is, this is chosen isolation. It would be a different matter if I were isolated against my will. And my wife, on the other hand, is an extrovert. She needs much more contact with other people than, than I do. She gets energy through contact with other people. So for her, isolation is, is much more uncomfortable. And without that contact, she begins to feel lonely. Like the stress response it stimulates, loneliness can be either acute or chronic. Acute loneliness is short-term. We all experience acute loneliness when we are temporarily separated from loved ones. We experience stress in these situations because our body, brain, mind is telling us that our well-being depends upon positive social interactions that we're not getting. It's like a hunger response which warns our body and brain that it needs food or water. The loneliness response warns us that we have been deprived of social connection and we need to reinforce those important social bonds. So we respond. We go outside. We mingle with people. We call our parents or our siblings. We reach out to friends. And the stress response subsides. Chronic loneliness, when we become so debilitated that we become unable to ease our loneliness, is a different matter. We may be unable to reach out and make meaningful connections. Or we may find ourselves in situations where all social contact is threatening and dangerous. In these instances, the stress response becomes continual, with no relief, no easing up. It is this chronic stress response that really does damage to our body and brain. Protective Factors I've focused primarily on social risk factors and have given short shrift to protective factors. I should say at least a few words about the protective nature of positive social interactions. Clearly, interactions that involve cooperation, support, altruism, kindness, affection, forgiveness, empathy, love, generosity, all are positive. They make us feel good. 
They nurture us and make life easier. They help us to feel safe and secure. And they contribute to our growth and development. Positive psychologist Barbara Fredrickson has a broaden and build theory about positive emotions and positive social interactions. Negative emotions tend to narrow our focus of attention. When threatened, our automatic nervous system kicks into fight-or-flight mode. Our attention becomes narrowly focused on the threat. We need to identify the threat and deal with it. So negative emotions and negative social interactions make us more myopic and more narrow-minded. Positive emotions, according to Fredrickson, do the opposite. When we feel good, when we feel safe and secure, our autonomic nervous system calms down. The fight-or-flight reaction is turned off, and what I call the digest, rest, and invest system is turned back on. In this mode, our attention broadens. Our mind becomes more receptive and welcoming to a broader range of stimuli. We become more curious and open-minded. This is the mode in which most of our learning and skill-building takes place. So in Fredrickson's Broaden and Build schema, this is when we do the, the mental work that makes us stronger and prepares us for the future. We invest time and energy into learning and development. Good social interactions nurture social learning and social cooperation. They contribute to our growth and development, and they reduce our stress levels. And best of all, they feel good. We crave the feelings of being wanted, accepted, and loved. We crave affection and, and caring and physical closeness. We long to feel respected and valued. When we get these things, our body and brains tend to prosper. And when we are deprived of them, our body and brain is diminished. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode gave you some idea of how to think about both the risks and the protections of social engagement. If you haven't listened to the previous Cogwheel episodes, you might want to circle back and listen to the introductory session and then the episodes on physical exercise and mental stimulation. Remember that we promote a combinatorial approach to brain health. Each of the eight cogwheels need to be working well in order to optimize your ability to live long and to live well. So next week, we will turn our attention to stress management. And then in each subsequent week, we will look at diet, sleep, medical factors, and environmental factors. And you can access all of the podcasts for free on the podcast page of our website at www.mindramp.com. M-I-N-D-R-A-M-P dot O-R-G. While there, please take a moment to review our services and consider how we might help you or your organization optimize your ability to live long and live well. <music>